Welcome to the UGA BCM podcast, a ministry of the BCM at the University of Georgia. To find out more about us, follow us on Instagram at UGA BCM. We are so excited to have a special guest speaker, Jay Tolbert, today. We hope you enjoy the episode. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you, worship team, for for leading us, um, for reminding us that the Spirit is here. Yeah, give it up for the worship team. That was great. Um, That's something that I think oftentimes we can neglect, that the Spirit is just here. It's not just where two or three or more may be gathered. We have the Spirit everywhere that we go, and sometimes we just need that reminder because it's the Spirit who empowers us. It's the Spirit who, who gives us the words to speak, the prayers to pray, and just all of that. And so just thank you guys so much. Um, well, like Tommy said, my name is Jay Talbert. I am uh, just recently graduated from UG, actually. Uh, so I was here from 2014 to 2018, um, and I had the privilege to graduate and then get to stay in Athens, which is super awesome. Um, I've been at Green Acres ever since. Uh, our pastor, Cameron Ford, he's over here. He started about a month after me, and so we've, uh, we've really been together uh, for both of our, our whole tenures at Green Acres so far, and uh, hoping that it'll go for a good long while. But, um, but I've been married for about four years now. I got married right out of college to my middle school sweetheart. Uh, so that was pretty fun. Oh, I know, right? It's so sweet. Um, but uh, my wife's name is Conley. She's great. Um, some of you might know her. Some of you probably don't. But yeah, she's great. We are expecting a baby girl in January. So prayers appreciated because as excited as I am, I am scared to death as well because it's a little girl. God, that's terrifying. But I'm so excited. She's going to be the best. Her name's going to be Riley Francis. It's going to be great. Uh, we have a cat. I would have put a mark on the cat board up at the top. So shout out to cats. Uh, they're the best. Um, but his name is Aldo. It's great. Um, but yeah, I'm super excited to be here tonight. Tommy kind of stole all of my material for introducing myself. So like I said, I'm just going to hop right in. All right. So tonight, we're going to be talking about the flood. And I have a little bit of trivia before we hop into that, all right? So you don't have to say anything, but I just want you to like raise, raise fingers, all right? So trivia question. How many of each animal did Moses bring on the ark? Did anyone catch what I did there? It wasn't Moses. It was Noah. Got y'all. All right. Now, how many animals did Noah bring on the ark? Wrong again. Wrong again. I'm not going to give you the answer. I want you to go find it for yourself in the book of Genesis, chapter 6, which is where we'll be tonight. All right? Um, So I wanted to, that was the old classic. I was seeing if you guys were paying attention. Now I'm going to say Moses probably about seven times. So just bear with me. From now on, if I say Moses, I mean Noah. All right? Sound good? Um, All right. So, Really, my desire tonight is to, uh, as we look at the story of the flood, um, is to come to a better understanding of God's love and grace. A little bit weird, right? The flood, judgment, destruction of the world, God's love and grace, and mercy, and and all of these things. How how in the world can we do that? Um, It's very hard to read a story like this, and and it's funny, 
the joke about, about the story of the flood is that why in the world is it in every children's Bible in the world, right? Like, because there's animals, and they're easy to draw. That's really fun to do. But, like, this is a terrifying story. It's absolutely terrifying. But something that we're doing and something that, that I hope you guys are also doing in your dog packs or in your small groups, if you're going through Genesis, is, is we are pointing everything back to Jesus, back to the gospel, just like Jesus himself did. He tells us that everything in the Old Testament was pointing to him. And so that's what I'm going to be doing tonight. I'm going to be taking this, this flood narrative, and thank you for giving this to me, Tommy. I'm actually very excited. That's not facetious at all. I love this story. So I'm, I'm really excited. Um, but I don't want to start off all happy and stuff. Jokes were good, but we got to get into this story now. And one thing that kind of bothers me about this story is that I wish that it started with verse 5. Because if you are just kind of reading without thinking verses 1 through 4, you might not see anything wrong. You might not understand what is being said. And so really quickly, I want to read verse 5, and then I want to go into verses 1 through 4, all right? So this is Genesis chapter 6. I'm going to start with verse 5. When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil at the time. So obviously there's a comma there, but we're going to stop there. We're going to go to verse 1. So we're seeing here, verse 5, it's bad. It's very bad. And the reason why God is saying this is because of what we're reading now in verses 1 through 4. When mankind began to multiply on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of mankind were beautiful. And they took any they chose as wives for themselves. And the Lord said, My spirit will not remain with mankind forever, because they are corrupt. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth both in those days and afterward, when the sons of God came to the daughters of mankind, who bore children to them. They were powerful men of old, the famous men. I think you can miss it there. If you don't read this in the context of verse 5, you can miss it there. You can think to yourself, oh, cool, there's these weird people that start with the letter N, Nephilim, whatever they are. We don't really know exactly what they are. And, and they were, you know, we just talked about in creation that we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply, and, and that's what's happening. Cool. Look at verse 1. Look at verse 1, and I want you to tell me, is this... Is this a consensual relationship, a consensual, I love you and you love me and we desire to serve each other and love each other and, and, and then we can also have children and we can share that love with them and we can do this? Does it sound like that? No. It says the sons of God looked and saw that the women of men were, were beautiful and so they just took them as they wanted. Abuse, exploitation, taking them against their will. In fact, this almost perfectly, perfectly matches exactly what the fall is. And in Genesis chapter 3, uh, we read where the fall happens. It says that um, in verse 6, the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at, and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. 
So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. See, this is Satan's ploy. Satan knows who God is. Satan knows that as we sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, Satan knows that more than every single one of us. He knows that more personally than any of us. And he knows, and he knew in the garden that if he could just take Adam and Eve's eyes off of God, which is the greatest good that exists in this universe and outside of this universe, he is the creator of it, and on to the things that are around them, which God did a good job, right? Everything he created, he said, and it was good. And then he was done, and he was like, and it was very good. He did a good job. Because he desired for us to, to flourish, to, to enjoy the life that, that we were given, to enjoy the breath that he put inside of our lungs. And so Satan knew if we could just, if we could just get their eyes off of God and on the things right here, then they'll stop desiring God. They'll start wanting what they want. They will start going after anything and everything that they think is good for them. It's no longer when you bring your eyes off of God, it's no longer about serving God and loving God. It's about serving yourself and loving yourself. These men looked at these women. They didn't see them as image bearers of God. Yes, they looked and they said, they are beautiful they are beautiful. And I'm going to take them and I'm going to take advantage of them because that's what I want. They took one of the things in which God said to his image bearers, go, be fruitful and multiply, and they perverted it. They turned it on its head in a gross way. I hope that this grosses you out, that this makes you feel uncomfortable reading this in light of verse 5. But what about the other part of the commission that God gave to his image bearers? It was not just to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It was to take dominion over the earth, to, to cultivate society in which we can flourish as people of God. We can flourish under the love of God. We, we create a place where all are welcome and all are loved. While we don't know what these Nephilim were, they're associated with, with giants, and, 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 and really the only thing that we know for sure is that they were mighty men. They were warriors. Why do you need warriors? And you guys can respond to me too. I didn't say that at the beginning. Why do we need warriors? To fight, right? Why do you fight? Because there's conflict, right? Is, is fighting and is war a part of society that is flourishing? Absolutely not. Now, we love the dominion part of it. They loved the dominion part of it. They would love to go in, take over these places, do what was best for them, kick these people out or keep them and force them to work for you and force their women to be your wives and bear children for you. 
And so just in these first four verses, we see that the image bearers of God who were given a commission that Tommy talked about to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, take dominion upon it, take care of it, bring about flourishing to this world, and they completely just threw it out, trampled it. It's very similar to what we do with the law, right? When we read about what Paul says about the law and that it became a curse, it became just a mirror to show us our own sinfulness, right? This is nothing new. This is nothing new. And that's why this first point that I'm talking about is the pervasiveness of sin, but also the love of God. The pervasiveness of sin, it was in all of mankind. Let me read verse 5 to you again. It says, When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every, every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time. It reminds you of scriptures like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. We know that, that the wages of sin is death. We read in Romans chapter 1 that, that we, we want to invent ways to sin. It wasn't good enough just to, you know, desire to be like God. We want to invent ways to sin. That is the pervasiveness of sin in our lives. And we even read in Romans that, that, that we literally cannot choose to serve God. We are enemies of God. We are against God. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We know this. That is the pervasiveness of human love. But then we get into something that's a little bit weird. If you've read this story before, you might have been like, I don't really know what that means. In verse 6, it says this, The Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and he was deeply grieved. The Lord regretted? So the Lord made a mistake? It was the wrong thing for God to do to create the world, to create mankind? That's not what this is saying. The main point being the pervasiveness of sin and the love of God. God cared about us so much. God loved us so much that it broke him. It, it broke his heart. See, see, a lot of times we don't think emotional is good. But then we also know that God is the giver of every good gift, and God himself is the one who gave us emotions. We're not talking about a God who is, is, is he freaks out about everything. He, he, he gets thrown off, and, he, and he's uncontrollable, and, 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 and he just can't handle it. No. We're talking about weeping with those who weep. feeling sorrow when things go wrong. God's regret was not saying that he made a mistake because God was not surprised by our sin. God was not surprised by the fallen world, but he was weeping over it. 
It grieved him. He knew sin would come. From the foundations of all the earth, he knew that we would fall. He knew that we would get to this point in time. But that didn't make it any easier to face, to see his creation that he loved so far gone, so far away from him. Just because you feel regret about something that you know was right does not mean that it wasn't right. Oftentimes when you do the right thing, especially in this earth, you lose a relationship or people look at you differently. A story that I heard as I was doing research was was a parent who who said, just because when I discipline my child, when he disobeys me, I know that it was the right thing to do, but then the next time that I see him and he recoils. It brings regret into his heart. It brings sorrow in his heart that that his son has that fear of him, but he knew that it was the right thing to do. What this is showing us here is not that God made a mistake, but that God cares. He cares about us. He cares about you. To the point that he was grieved. I think more a reaction to this verse should be like we read in in Psalm chapter 8, verse 4. Who is man that you, God, are mindful of him? If God did not care, if God did not love us, he would have just abandoned us. And yet, even with the pervasiveness of our sin, he still cares and he is still, he's still here. (laughs) That's just mind-boggling to me. Which leads me to the second point, which is about the consequences of our sin and the justice of God. Our sins have consequence. We, we know this. We know that our sins have consequences, and we're going to read really quickly what the consequence is here for the sins of the world. This is in verse 7. Then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind who I created off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. I talked about a scripture earlier, Romans 5, 8, for the wages of sin is death. Even in the garden, we see that God says, do not eat of this tree, for if you eat of it, you will what? surely die. Now, whether or not he meant that they would live forever, I I, I don't know. But what I do know is that when they sinned, they were separated from God. They were exiled away from God, unable to walk with him in the ways that they once did. And see, the thing about God is that he is not just a God of love and mercy and grace, but he's also a God of justice. He's a God who cares about justice, truth, fairness. 
and the pervasiveness of sin was in all of the world. And the wages of sin is death. And so here God is saying, I cannot relent any longer. I am so grieved over the fallenness of this world that I must bring justice. And so he decides that he's going to send a flood to wipe out the entire world. Now, I'm not here to argue whether this was the entire world, whether this was like a regional thing or what. I believe that God could have flooded the entire world, and so that's what I'm going to go with. You could probably convince me otherwise if you feel super strongly. That's not what I'm here to talk about. I'm here to talk about that God sent a flood to destroy all life on earth. The God who created everything is now decreating everything. Another probably right word would be destroying everything, decreating. Hey, you know, pastors get to create words. It's, it's really fun. You should try it sometime. But his plan was to send a flood to destroy the world. And I think some people might be like, wait, but what? God? God is doing this? God is doing He's, But he's gracious. He's supposed to be merciful. How could I serve a God who would destroy his creation? I want to read to you one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. It comes from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. This is Moses on top of the mountain. He's asked God to show him who he is. And so God says, okay, get in this crevice and I will pass by you. And as, as God passed by Moses, and this is actually Moses, not Noah. Now I'm all confused. Y'all got to keep me straight here. But Mo, he passed by Moses, and this is what we read. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God's desire is to love, to forgive, to show grace and to show mercy. That's why when Adam and Eve sinned, he didn't just decreate them. I'm just going with it. That's why he chose not to just kill them on the spot, which is what they deserve. The wages of sin is death. That truth that Paul wrote has been the truth forever. For if you eat of it, you shall surely die. They knew the consequences of their sin, and yet they still chose to sin. And we should be grateful that God is a God of justice who will send down his wrath. Let me ask you a question. Would you rather have a Band-Aid ripped off real quick or someone just so slowly just peel it off? Just peel it off and it's just... And it's like he's not even halfway there. He hadn't even started yet. Would you want to serve a God who just allowed sin to exist? To allow women to be mistreated like this? To allow wars to rage where, where 
People are, are dying and being killed, and, and there's no flourishing. No one glorifies God. No one loves each other. People only care about themselves and what they want. Would you want to serve a God who was just like, okay, okay, you guys do that. Maybe one day you guys will choose me. Maybe one, maybe one day you'll follow my law and love me. We have a God who cannot stand sin. He is holy, holy, holy. Who is holy, holy, holy. He must bring down judgment. This world must be cleansed because there is no way for his glory to continue in this world the way that it is. But that's not the only part of justice. I think sometimes when we talk about justice, all we talk about is punishing people for crimes they've committed. But the other half of justice is making sure that the innocent are taken care of, that they can go free, that they will not be punished for something that they did not do. That's what we read in verse 8. It tells us, Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. These are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God. Now, this does not mean that Noah was sinless. We know that very well. I'm not going to get into, like, you know, post-flood. I'm a little bit. But Noah shows us his human nature. He shows us the pervasiveness of sin. He was just like us plagued by nature to be a child of wrath. But we read in in Hebrews chapter 11, which is one of the coolest chapters in all of Scripture because it, it takes a look at a lot of Old Testament people who, though they were sinful, just like you and I, they placed their faith in God, which was counted to them as righteousness. And so while Noah was not sinless, he had placed his faith in God. He walked with God. And, and, and I would imagine what this looked like was even in the midst of his sin, he would go and, 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 and he, would, he would repent of his sin. He would go to the Lord. I don't know. The sacrifices haven't really been installed yet. And so I don't know. Maybe he, he builds an altar after he gets off the ark. So maybe, maybe he had some knowledge of that. But even in the midst of his sin, he would go to God. He would say, Lord, I've taken my eyes off of you. I know that you are holy, 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 and the things that you have created have nothing on you. They are no, nowhere near as good as you, and I apologize, Lord. Lord, please lift my eyes up to you. Let me serve you. And so his faith was counted to him as righteousness. And something you'll talk about next week is that even for one righteous man, God will spare. For one righteous man, God will relent. God is just. And for those who are found righteous, he will not pour his wrath out. God is not wrathful and and vengeful. He's not a bad emotional saying, well, you know, I know exactly what Noah's going to do later. 
so I'm just going to throw him under the water too. No. His faith was counted to him as righteousness, and so he chooses Noah to be basically a new Adam. And his wife comes with him. And his, his three sons and their wives come with him to, to be the ones who would start over as God is decreating through the flood, sending to destroy everything, which is the consequence of sin. We know this so that now we can start anew with a new Adam. God is a just God. He will pour out his wrath on sin because he hates it, and it brings death, destruction, pain to his creation. But those who are found righteous, he is more than willing to give every good gift. And in this situation, he gives Noah life. He gives him his family to come with him. He gives him animals to, to be able to, to have, to, to offer his sacrifices, to have his food. He says, he says gather food and, 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 and take it with you so that during the flood you have things to eat. And this leads us into my final point. Which is about God's power over sin and God's promise. God's power over sin and then God's promise. In chapter 8, right out of the gate we read this, God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the living and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused a wind to pass over the earth and the water began to subside. Genesis is awesome, by the way. It's beautiful writing. It's beautiful writing. I, I just want to turn over to chapter 1, verse 2, and I just want you to see the beauty of God. As he decreates, he destroys animals, cre creatures, plants, and then he re-merges sea and land. He goes literally backwards in creation all the way to the beginning, and it says in verse 2 of chapter 1, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now I want to read chapter 8, verse 1 again. God remembered Noah as well as all the wildlife and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. God caused, and this word wind here can also be translated, God caused his spirit to pass over the earth, over this water-covered earth. And as his spirit hovered, the waters began to subside. You read longer, and it says that, that land began to emerge, that they sent out birds to go and see if they could find some type of, of vegetation, and finally it comes back. And finally they land on a mountain, on a high place. And that's when God tells them in verse 15 of chapter 8, Come out of the ark, you, your wife, your sons, 
and your sons' wives with you. Bring out all the living creatures that are with you, birds, livestock, those that crawl on the earth, and they will spread over the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Again, he is recreating, he is redoing what he has already done. Be fruitful and multiply. Go. And if you're in a dog pack and you're doing Genesis, you might have talked about the Tower of Babel. I'm not going to get into that. We talked about that literally right before I came here, but whatever. It's great. It's great. (laughs) Um, And then we see, sorry, I just just chased that. It was great. Uh, Then we see in verse 20, then Noah, after he had exited the ark, built an altar to the Lord. He took some of every kind of clean animal and every kind of clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. When the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, he said to himself, I will never again curse the ground because of human beings, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward, and I will never again strike down every living thing as I have done as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, and day and night will not cease. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature and on the earth, every bird of the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. And then we're going to jump to verse 8. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Understand that I am establishing my covenant with you and your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, birds, livestock, and all wildlife of the earth that are with you, all the animals of the earth that came out of the ark. I establish my covenant with you that never again will every creature be wiped out by floodwaters. There will never again be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I am making between me and you and every living creature with you, a covenant for all future generations. I have placed my bow in the clouds, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. If you noticed in God's promise, He didn't say, I know that you will never sin. And if you do sin again, then this covenant is off. He said, I will never curse this world again to be destroyed, even though I know of the pervasiveness of sin, even though I know, Noah, that you are going to go and you're going to basically just start sinning immediately. I will never destroy again. Does that mean that the wrath of God has gone away? Absolutely not. But this is the gospel. God has every right to send another flood to destroy the entire world. This was just a physical manifestation of of the wrath of God against sin. Against sin and those who have committed it. That same amount of wrath is still Inside of God, it still exists. 
but from the foundations of the earth. Even though God knew of the pervasiveness of sin, he loved us enough to set up a plan to send his son into the world. Where we spit all over his law, we, we, we slandered his name, we ran from him, we fought him. That he would live a perfect life. Not that his faith, not that Jesus' faith would be counted to him as righteous, but he himself was righteous without sin, pure, spotless, lamb. And God knew of the pervasiveness of sin, so he knew that man would not accept him. They would persecute him, arrest him, mock him, spit on him, crucify him, kill him. Cameron uses a metaphor a lot of a dam that's holding back a river. That if that dam were to break, everything beyond it would be destroyed. This covenant that God made is that dam. That he will never destroy the world again. But the gospel is that Jesus came. He broke the dam and took upon himself the flood of God's wrath that should have been for me, that should have been for you. He took it upon himself. He took your sins upon himself and took on the full wrath of God. He died. He went to the grave. And because he did that, because he took the wrath that was deserved for you, that was reserved for you, that should have been given out to you, that should come again as a flood to destroy this world. Sin has not changed. That now, if you place your faith into him who loved you in spite of your sin, then he promises that you will have new life. The wages of sin is death, but that wage has been paid with Jesus' life. And now because Jesus has died, the wrath no longer exists for those who place their faith into him. And the thing about it is, is that God's power over sin doesn't just end with Jesus dying and God being like, all right, there's all my wrath gone. <laughs> no. The wage of sin was death, and Christ did that. But God has so much more power than sin. No matter what you've done, God has so much more power than your sin that he raised Jesus from the dead. That we might not taste death ever again. We might physically die here on this earth, but if you place your faith into him who loves you, who died for you, then you can have life and life eternal with God forever. That is a promise. 
where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, for the wages of sin is death. But the good news is that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior tonight, I pray that the Spirit is moving in you, that the Spirit is drawing you to himself, that that even though you might feel the weight of sin upon you, you might feel the weight of God's wrath above you, that you would know that you have a heavenly Father who created you and who loves you, who sent a son to die for you, and that all you have to do is say yes to him. Place your faith into him and it will be counted for you as righteousness. You will be made pure. You will be made like Jesus. And so, as I begin to pray tonight, and as the worship team comes back up for the final song, there's going to be some people scattered throughout the room. Some of the campus missionaries and Tommy will be around and, and, and I'll, be, I'll be around and, and, and Cameron will be around. Find someone. If the Holy Spirit is drawing you now, find someone. Tell them about it. You might not understand it. You might not understand what's going on right now. But the Spirit of God is calling you and drawing you to come to Him, to accept this gift of life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the UGABCM podcast. That's all for today. Can't wait to see you guys next time.